You know, if we really think about the large landscape of queer programming over those course of decades, the majority of it is gone. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we're going to talk about archiving the sounds of LGBTQ community radio with Brian DeShazer. I'm going to start the program by playing a long archival tape that Brian provided to Radio Survivor. This show is called Homosexual News, and it was broadcast on WBAI in New York City in 1970, about one year after Stonewall. This is Charles Pitts. On Saturday night, August 29, 1970, a group of some two or three hundred young homosexual men and women gathered on the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street. Their purpose was to demonstrate and protest against the arrest of other homosexuals during the previous two weeks. According to a leaflet that they handed out, the police have been harassing gay people on 42nd Street for the past few weeks. Hundreds have been arrested and held overnight in an attempt to clean up the streets as they do for each election. The Central Park Rambles and other gay areas have also been raided. Gay people are forced to meet on the streets in oppressive bars and in the bushes by this repressive culture. Now the police are driving us from even this way of meeting each other. The night previous, Friday night, two things happened that were of concern to homosexuals. The first was that homosexuals were locked out of New York University's Weinstein Hall because the administration didn't want a homosexual group holding a dance there. That same night, three young homosexuals were attacked by a group of 25 straight guys and beaten severely, sending two of them to the hospital. That happened in Sheridan Square. I heard you telling some other people that that you had been harassed by the police on the street. Yes, I have many a times, but still in all, that does not give me a reason to go up to their face and call them pigs and so forth and so on. I have respect for them, because after all, they do give me my protection whenever I need it. Oh, uh, where, where have you, where have you been that they have... Uh... Times Square area, the village, all around. And have, have you found that if you were in trouble, they would protect you? Yes, as long as they didn't know what I was. Oh. It, are you drag queen? I used to be a female impersonator, yes, at one time. Did you have more trouble then when, uh, than you do now? In some ways. How do you mean? Well, um, I would be carrying myself like what I was dressed as, and they would come up to me, and in front of a whole group of people, they would um, like say, hey, mister, you know, and stuff like this, which really isn't necessary. You know, because I mean, if I'm minding my own business, why they, why can't they mind theirs? They're out here harassing homosexuals and so forth and so on, while meanwhile someone is robbing someone else's pocketbook and stuff. You know, and a lot of people have said this, and you know, it, it seems like a whole bunch of BS at first. But if you really come to think about it, you know, it's 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 terrible. I mean, the way police are are you know going around insulting other people. And then when you say something back to them quickly, you're wrong. And their first remedy is their billy club. Yeah. Have, you ever, have you ever been beaten? Yes, I was. As, as a drag or the way you are now? As the way I am now. And what, what was the provocation? Well, um, I was walking down the street with two friends of mine. 
And so, you know, like, um, we were talking and so forth and so on. So this one cop said, um, hey, how about a job? How about a what? Job. Yeah. So I said, well, why don't you go ask your mother? After all, she was the one who brought you into the world. Why not ask her? You know, so then, um, I was wrong, you know, because I shouldn't have answered him. But still in all, he, that was no reason for him to come upon me and beat me the way he did. And, uh, how, how exactly did he beat you? Well, he took out his billy club. First he slapped me, then he took out his billy club, hit me across my legs. And um, he knocked me through a window. As a matter of fact, I still have a mark on my leg. Where was the window? Where were you? Was this at Times Square or in the village? At the village. In the village? Yes. How long ago? This was about six months ago. And um, have you had any friends or that have been arrested or have you been arrested? Yes, I have, many a times, for loitering, soliciting, even though I don't know why I'm soliciting. If a man comes up to me and asks me for a match, you know, I don't see how I can be soliciting. And have you spent any time in jail, or were the one charges night, dropped? One night, yes. The charges are always dropped? Yes, and it's embarrassing because, and it's a hassle because you have to go down there, you have to be insulted by the people who are there, and then... You know, just to li hear the judge say, um, case dismissed, you know, case closed. They're calling for another CPS. Oh, really? So, like, they won't let them march down 42nd Street. And so Wait, they won't let us march on the sidewalk even? No. Oh. And, and so they're calling for another TPS unit, which means it's going to be... Well, no, the media's here, so maybe that'll save our no, heads a little right bit. The ACLU's in the front there. They won't let them march down. Speaking with the, observe, with the Civil Liberties Observer on the legality of the, uh, of the two banners, the two banners are wider than two abreast. And, uh, uh, is that the only thing holding up the march? That's the only thing holding up the march at the present. Is, uh, the question is the fact that the GAA banner and the Gay Liberation Front banner are wider than two abreast. Sir, Sir, uh, not oh, wait a minute, there's no law saying we have to be two abreast. We have to be two abreast, yes. The police captain of the TPF asked me. But he, there is no law requiring that. Well, if we are more than three abreast really or three abreast, really it is considered a parade. We don't have a parade I went down it. to police headquarters and they said, we told them what we would be doing here. We said we'd be marching up on the sidewalk. And they said we will not need a permit. They said uh, just so long as we leave half the sidewalk clear. <laughs> Do the banners leave half the sidewalk clear? Yes. The sidewalk well, let's go talk feet. to the people. Oh, I can't take on Why not? What is the theater of 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 Okay, let's let's march. Again, that was the archival tape from WBAI in New York from 1970. Program was called Homosexual News. It aired about a year after Stonewall. The audio comes to us uh, courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts, who produced the content, and it's part of a collection of gay radio archives, of community radio, that we're talking about today on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Cohen, and my co-host is Jennifer Waits.
Today we're talking to Brian DeShazer, an independent radio researcher and the founder of the Queer Radio Research Project, Pacifica Radio. Brian, I'm so excited to talk to you because you've done some tremendous research and archival work about queer voices on the radio. And I guess I want to start by asking, why is community radio in particular important for gay history and LGBTQ history? Well, I think it's uh, mainly because the anonymity was a very important aspect of of coming out on the radio um, at a time when evidence against an individual might cause them problems in the workplace um, or legal issues. So what I've been really excited about is that the perspectives and events that have remained unaddressed by the primary document record are now receiving due recognition by academia, meaning that the conversational and community-building character of radio history lends itself to the civil rights movement as well as the um, LGBTQ or queer rights movement. Brian, thank you so much for saying that. I want to underline it for the listeners. What is what is unique about radio as a document that gives a new portrait of, of the people who are sharing their voices, queer people and gay people, in decades past? What is unique about radio and community radio in particular? Sure. Well, community radio has that um, small town feel to it. They're usually people um, in conversation about local activities, local events, and local um, communities that were being built. So much of academia and the historic record comes from a James Baldwin speech that was transcribed and published, um, or a lecture that was transcribed and published, or and even in community radio, speeches and poetry and oration has been a big part of that. But the historic record and how we how history is written is rarely because of a conversation between two people that are unknown. And that's where community radio and the LGBT history, which I call a hidden history because it is not famous people that people can um, uh, a list as the you know the hundred greatest LGBTQ people in in American history. That's not how the community was built, and that's not how the um, the gay rights movement of the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies really um, was built. You know, after Stonewall in 1969, it really wasn't until 1973, 1974, that the five Pacifica radio stations in New York, L.A., Berkeley, and actually that those are the three that existed during that time. The other two, WPFW and KPFT, um, didn't come into being until 75 and 78. But it what it took these four years for the for the three radio stations to really. Um, examine what was needed for the LGBT community and what kind of radio show it was going to be and who was going to produce that radio show. I mean, then how to get those people and train them to do radio. Um, so community radio is an important part of the fabric of how communities, the, the unknown, as I, I call us, um, really came into being. So are you, uh, I would assume then you're contrasting that with mainstream radio or commercial radio where there wasn't that ability to have anonymity or community building in the way I'm thinking as you're describing this I'm thinking of things like talk shows that that might have been 
a place on community radio where people were talking about these very personal issues in an anonymous way. Is that is that kind of part of that history? Right, right. In fact, one of the th- um, important parts of those early programs, and there was a, ser- a 26-week series um, that was broadcast on the New York radio station, WBA, in 1968 through 1969, overlapping Stonewall. Um, mm-hmm. And those really were about those conversational um, pieces of a conversation with young lesbians moderated by Barbara Giddings um, and Charles Pitts, you know, doing listener phone-in calls with people who came to come out on the radio because it was anonymous and it was a safe place and it was a safe haven for these um, rather raucous conversations and very deep um, questions that people had about their sexuality. So people were actually coming out on the radio. Absolutely. And those are some of the recordings that I can share with you, both a a letter written to WBAI by a young lesbian being read by Barbara Giddings, or a 16-year-old boy calling into a radio show on WBAI in 1969, 1970, asking about his boyfriend and his girlfriend and how to tell his mother and where to meet people. And as a high school student, what is he supposed to know? Um, and it's it's riveting, be- not only because it's so um, bold and unapologetic with how the conversation happened, but also how relevant it is today that those uh, those questions are still being asked of young people because the history isn't there and the information isn't there necessarily for everyone to access in every single town and across America. And that's something I've been thinking about as I think about your archival project is, is this history widely known? Do people widely understand, you know, the history of of queer culture or of of radio um, or even Stonewall? And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, do we even need to explain that to our listeners? What was what was the world like when when people were calling into radio shows and coming out during this time period? And, and what was it like for people who were queer? You know, could they be, could they be open about their relationships in public or were there, you know, what, what was, what was the environment like when, when people had to be anonymous calling into a radio talking about their lives? Well, and actually one of the, um, more prominent programs from WBAI is from 1965, I believe. Um, And it's for professionals coming out on the radio. That's the title of the Mm. program. Um, Prior to that, there was a 1963 program, which was called Live and Let Live, which does survive in the Pacifica Radio Archives. But it's eight gay men in an apartment on the Upper West Side talking about their personal uh, lives and what it meant to be... A known homosexual was not is which was not the same as being an open homosexual. You know, Interesting. you you know, you lived your life as you did, and people knew that you were homosexual, but you didn't announce it. You didn't have a process to come out in the workplace or even with the family. So between 1963 and 1968, there was really like a no man, no person's land. Um, in terms of what was being broadcast on the radio. But in 1968, they really did produce a 26-week series. Some of those program titles were called The Leather Scene, um, The Violence Against Homosexuals, um, 
and where you know, homosexual meeting places like a whole program about where do you meet each other? Is it the gay bars, which were owned by the mafia and were seedy and dangerous um, to other places? So even in the 68, 69 pre-Stonewall, post-Stonewall years, the main question that was being raised and being um, in the public informed by WBAI host really was about I- identity, self-awareness, and finding a safe place to be yourself and an authentic self in the city that you live in. What's um, surprising about those conversations is the hosts that are answering the questions for listener call-ins are very matter-of-fact, almost to a legal point of there is no shame in it. Um, You're valid for asking the question, and here's the best answer I can give you. Here's some co- here's some information of where you can find out more. So, community radio and Pacifica Radio, um, before NPR um, really got rolling, really was the only place for free information back and forth of information about the queer communities. And Brian, I hear you. You're talking right now primarily about um, the Pacifica affiliate station in New York City in the 60s and 70s. And I imagine that each, well, each Pacifica station that you referenced as part of the archive that you're trying to build, um, LA and the San Francisco Bay Area, I imagine each had a unique uh, gay culture, especially uh, community radio gay culture. Um, I wonder if you could talk about about the differences. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in uh, I wrote an article in the Journal of Radio and Audio Media about um, these histories, and one of the things I really wanted to focus on was the difference in the f- five Pacifica radio stations with regard to the queer communities and how the radio station invited those communities in and how it responded back to the communities. Um, and yes, indeed, one station or another had a... Um, sort of flashpoint um, period that helped move the um, chess piece forward. Uh, 1956 is considered the first queer radio program broadcast on KPFA in Berkeley, which was Allen Ginsberg reading his poem Howl. And that's very, fa- oh. very famous, very well known. Um, it's been played millions of times on KPFA and Pacifica Radio. But because Allen Ginsberg was known as an open homosexual. The the poem he read did have queer content in it. That's considered by scholars as the first public radio program of homosexuals. The next point, um, as KPFA listeners and Pacifica aficionados would know, the next important program was 1958, Elsa Knight Thompson, in a program called The Homosexual in Our Society where she interviews an open homosexual, a psychologist, and the mother of a homosexual, um, a representative from the Mattachine Society. Um, But that conversation was rather clinical, really about saying that we're not um, crazy people who should be institutionalized and have a psychological problem. Yeah, 1958 again. That was 1958. So, So then we jumped to 1963, which was the next Flashpoint program in New York City. Now, the important part of that story is that those Pacifica stations shared programs. So literally less than a year before that 1963 program in New York was broadcast, 
1958 program from Berkeley was broadcast in New York. So the programs were shared with those program, uh, with those communities. So the New York programmer said, hey, wait a minute, that program that you just aired, we should do our own program, and we should do it this way. Um, so each one sort of layered on top of the other how it influenced the next generation of programming. That's fascinating. And you've, you've just... Um you just talked about the Bay Area and, and New York City. Um, how did L.A., Houston, and D.C. fare? Right. Well, um, L.A., you know, KPFK, um, also rebroadcast that 1958 program the year of their inauguration. Like, they started broadcasting in 1959. So the um, in the opening months, they broadcast that homosexual in our society as one of the most important programs in Pacifica's 10-year history at the time. Um, but I think KPFA in Berkeley and KPFK in Los Angeles both had the, like the you know, superlative firsts of opening up the doorways to um, individual homosexuals doing commentaries in you know, small 15-minute commentaries as part of community um, outreach. And then from those individual commentaries built coalitions, um, yeah. you know, the Gay Radio Collective in L.A., um, and there were a couple of them in Berkeley, both uh, a, a lesbian um, pro a lesbian collective and a gay men's collective. So there was this um, this other, the next period in the seventy three seventy four was when um, e each letter of the LGBT started to define their own niche um, and their own reason for their own programming. So there were mm. experiments. There was a, a program in LA called Gay at Heart. There's a program called Lesbian Nation. There's a program called The Lesbians. <laughs> um, so there was experimentation with an individual programmer. Um, and this is one of the collections I actually discovered in a warehouse in Palm Springs. I'm um, doing my research, reading the KPFK folio printed program guides from those years. I found a guy named Richard Gollins who did um, Gay Community Services Center commentaries. I found him on Facebook, and I emailed him, um, and I said, I found record of you doing this program, but I worked at Pacifica for 20 years in the archives, and I've never heard of it. And he said, and I, he contacted me back. He said, oh, yes, and I have those tapes in a storage unit. Oh, wow. So this was before... Open air conditioned storage unit. Unfortunately, it was Palm Springs hot air, uh, you know, like a, a, a personal storage unit. So uh, I was lucky enough to retrieve the tapes and get them um, donated um, via Richard's preference to University of California, Santa Barbara, special research collections, where they digitized them all for me. Um, so I have listened to them. And they are Richard Gollins as a representative of the Gay Community Services Center, which is now the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. Um, Interviewing the founders of the center, you know, uh, um, interviewing um, Arthur Bell from New York, an activist. He also interviewed the founder of the first VD clinic for gays and lesbians in Los Angeles um, and five women who were the moderators of women's gay consciousness groups, consciousness raising groups. Well, let's listen to a clip that Brian is talking about. This is Richard Gollins speaking on KPFK, the L.A. Pacifica radio station, in 1973, 
this clip is with uh, an interview with Morris Knight, and they're talking about uh, Stonewall five years after it occurred in 1969. The clip is from 1974. Good afternoon. This is Richard Gollins with commentary from the Gay Community Services Center. About two days ago, I got a telephone call from Morris Kite, who's, I would say, the father of Los Angeles Gay Liberation. And uh, whenever Morris calls and has something he wants to talk about on the show, that's automatically a show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners some background as far as... Here is the uh, situation, brothers and sisters. Last uh, Sunday, throughout the United States, gay people celebrated what for us is a high holy month, the anniversary of the Stonewall, a reasonably nonviolent riot lasting a couple of days in New York in the last week in June 1969. It's an important event for us, and we celebrate it not by rioting, but in prideful ways. Throughout the country, I took enormous personal pride in the things I saw happening. It fell my lot to be invited to come to New York to be the keynote speaker of the Christopher Street Liberation Day rally in Washington Square. An amazing achievement. Several hours of entertainment. Barbara Gittings of Philadelphia was the other keynoter. Bette Midler came, received an ovation. It was a high and electric time. Afterward, uh, friends had a champagne and steak party, which is unusual for me because it's usually hamburgers and Cokes. And afterward, some poets and writers came and said, I think what you need is to get away and, and let's just talk. So we went at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning to Riverside Park in New York, not a soul to be seen for miles around. And we just walked and read poetry and sang and kissed one another and listened to the Hudson River as it uh, sloshed away and heard the boats in the distance. And I couldn't have felt better. When I returned to the place I was staying in New York in the apartment of Morty Manford in the village, the phone was ringing. It was my associates at the center and from around the country saying, where have you been? You're needed. And what am I needed for now? And I was told of an enormous tragedy which had happened in New Orleans that afternoon when all the rest of the nation was finishing its gay pride. This awful thing happened. Here are the facts. There is a gay bar at the corner of Iverville and uh, Chateau, except they say charters down their street, in the very edge of the Vaucaray, the French Quarter in New Orleans. It's a three-story brick building, very old, very dry, very dusty. On the first floor are two non-gay bars. The second floor, the gay bar, the upstairs, and the third floor they say is used for sleeping. I don't know what that means. Happily, nobody was there at the time of the fire. Somewhere along the way, a fire erupted in the building. We think we know the cause of it. However, we promised the police in New Orleans that we would not discuss the cause until more information had been developed. Whatever happened, flames rushed into the air conditioning unit, spread throughout the bar, and before the Holocaust was over, 29 of my brothers and a sister were burned to death. I might add the sister was non-gay. She was there with her two sons. There were other non-gay people in the bar. 29 dead an enormous number wounded sufficient to require hospital care and then made ambulatory. Fifteen wound up in the hospitals. At this moment, at the time recording the show, the hospital count is down to ten. Four are in exceedingly critical condition. One is in guarded condition, and five are in fair condition. Expectations are that not quite all will make it, I'm sorry to say. So, in New Orleans, we found a lot of things waiting for us. We found a good deal of misunderstanding, the makings of an anti-gay pogrom. A member of the police department, chief of detectives, had said to the media that it was a queer bar, using that vicious pejorative from out of the past. He had said also that it was frequented by burglars and thieves, and that it was well-known gay people don't carry proper identification, 
and thus we would never be able to identify the bodies. The Times-Picayune called me in New York to ask me my response to that, and I said, well, not very good. I think at this time uh, the police need to be calling for compassion and warmth and love and understanding, that there is a major tragedy upon our hands and that we need to be responsible and responsive at this time. And if that police person has those kinds of ideas, I would like later on to talk with him. But right now I don't want to talk with him about that. I want to talk with him about the fact that we have a duty to the dead and to the wounded and to this community and to their families. Some kook called one of those television talk shows and said that he represented a group called the Black Mamas and the White Mamas, using a showbiz term. This is not all that racist. It's just the term he was using. And that they were going to carry on vigilante action against us, and particularly against me and Reverend Troy Perry, who had also come to New Orleans. The station asked my opinion of that, and I said, well, I advocate freedom of speech. I think all words should be said, but occasionally some words can be really harmful, and it's possible that kind of statement could set off a chain reaction of people who might indeed get the idea that it would be a lot of fun to kill a lot of gay people and burn a lot of gay bars and make our lives miserable. And thus we knew that part of our problem was to, was to counter that kind of thing. Also, we had suspected that we would be treated as outside agitators, and we were. We were suspected also that the community there wouldn't understand who it was very well, and it turned out it didn't. Many of the victims of the fire were holding their hands over their mouths and saying, please don't say to the public that it was a gay bar. And we said, fine, we respect your wishes, but it's in every guide in the country as a gay bar. Everybody knows that. Can't we now at this time say to the world, yes, indeed, we're gay and we're proud and that we have a duty? Again, that is a radio clip, an archival clip from KPFK in Los Angeles from 1974 with Richard Golentz, uh, speaking with Morris Knight. Audio comes to Brian DeShazer and to Radio Survivor, courtesy of UC Santa Barbara Library Special Research Collections, after Brian DeShazer essentially rescued the tape from a hot storage unit in Santa Barbara after tracking down Richard Golentz, uh, finding out that the program existed. And now let's go back. We'll go back to the interview with Brian DeShazer on Radio Survivor. I'm fascinated by these interviews because they really were of how the community and the center was built from the ground up um, and the reasons why we needed a medical center or a clinic or a VD clinic um, and why women and lesbians needed their own consciousness raising groups within the feminist movement of the 70s. And Brian DeShazer, it's it's worth uh, repeating that this collection of community radio was is from the, the, the 70s, I'm assuming? Right. The, the uh, series I'm talking about now is from 1973, um, just one year. And right in 1974, Richard um, Gollantz left KPFK to go to UCLA, and it was taken over by the Gay Radio Collective, which created IMRU, which is still on the air today at KPFK. And I just wanted to underline, again, because it's a real like radio survivor um like a, a story of real heroism as far as we're concerned that that you you discovered that this program existed because you read about it uh briefly in in a in basically a program guide a, a printed program guide that was put out by the LA Pacifica radio station and you were intrigued so you d found the individual who hosted that 1973 gay community radio show in LA and rescued the tapes from a storage unit it could not have been too soon because a storage unit in the desert that's not climate controlled is not a good place to store 40 year old tape of the digitized maybe 30 programs there were two that came out unsalvageable like the the program is yeah. there was what's called bleed through where both sides of the tape 
you can are, are bled through, so you can hear like two or three conversations at once. Um, so they're, I say three of them are unintelligible, you know, and we can't really um, retrieve any information from it. And maybe it's time begin to to talk about what your project is. Like, um, tell us more about about this archive that you're building. You know that that you were doing this work in the first place to save to save these one of a kind tapes. Right. Well, I established the Queer Radio Research Project to um, really research the print and audio holdings of Pacifica Radio, uh, create a Pacifica LGBTQ timeline of the five stations, you know, identify holdings in existing collections that are not at Pacifica, like at the One Archives, um, the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives at USC, New York Public Library. Many of the individual programmers at Pacifica donated their tapes to local institutions, either themselves or their estates after they died. I would like to merge those collective records and assess descriptions and access to those recordings um, and publish a user's guide and aggregate a database eventually. Um, but that's, you know, up the line. But right now, literally, I'm still reading every entry in all five stations folio printed guides from literally 1949 on a monthly basis um, to identify those programs and you also have to I also learned as I was doing it is not all queer programs are identified with keywords that we use now as researchers those early programs from the 60s don't necessarily use the word homosexual or the word lesbian wasn't really used they used the word gay women a lot mm -hmm. in those early days. So even the vocabulary had to sort of be researched before I could start looking into those records. You know, uh, a speech by uh, a reading of James Baldwin, James Baldwin reading from Giovanni's room is not listed as a queer program, but it definitely is fits within the genre of queer radio um, that I need to identify. Interviews with Christopher Isherwood and Anais Nin, none of those have queer identifiers. So I have to sort of gather those and then start looking at those other programs that are identified with keywords that are um, known to queer researchers now and then find out if they exist. You know, so there's many programs in the folio printed guides that did not survive on a reel-to-reel -reel tape in the Pacifica archives or necessarily in an, in an individual's collection. Um, so that's how I'm sort of tracing and charting um, the program chronology of each station and then merging them together to see how they relate to each other. And, you, and you're focusing on, on Pacifica stations solely, is that true for your project? Um, yeah, I'm focusing on those, you know, one, because that's the knowledge space that I have in terms of, you know, I know there's tapes in the archives that aren't cataloged and available in the database yet, but I know what they are. You know, I know some of the other collections um, at other institutions and know how they are described. You know, some, of, some recordings at other institutions don't even have Pacifica Radio as a keyword, you know, it might have WBAI, but without Pacifica, then the cross-referencing of those records don't match up with a record that might be at the Berkeley Public Library or the San Francisco State Historical Society, which has right. um, uh, KPFA, one of the earliest series was called the Fruit Punch Collective, 
which is mm. one of my favorite titles. Um, <laughs> right. And there's actually a lesbian program, which uh, a series, which is my favorite, called The Velvet Sledgehammer, um, that some of those recordings actually do survive. Um, so those recordings, um, some of them survive and some of them don't. Some of them survive in Pacifica archives and some of them survive in um, these other institutions. Um, but, you know, really getting a... Um, a charted course of programs that um, existed and then go and identify and try to find them is really the project. And, and was Pacifica one of the only places where people might have heard queer programming during these time periods that you're talking about, like the 50s through the 1970s? Right. Um, you know, as, as you know, uh, NPR stations really didn't get rolling until around 1975, and although they did have some queer subject programs, they didn't have queer programmers that produced queer programs by and for um, LGBTQ communities. Um, and also, so being that Pacifica predates NPR and most public radio stations by some 35 years, this really is the gold mine, uh, gold mine of what mm -hmm. and and the origins of that history. Um, there is a there is a radio series called Gay Spirit Radio out of a station in Massachusetts, which has been on the air since 1974, um, and that's by the same individual producer, not a collective. Um, so yeah, it does exist, but the bulk of the programming and the importance of and the impact of that programming rests in Pacifica's history because of the cities they were in, New York, Berkeley, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, you know, the three major gay ghettos where, you know, activism sort of flourished as well as the downside of the AIDS epidemic and um, the, I'd say the, the, the tussle between the feminist movement and the lesbian separatists and those sort of how those movements sort of interspersed and interacted mm. in ways. Yeah, and so then all that plays out on the radio. That's really interesting. I, I was going to ask you that, why, why you think Pacifica in particular was such a great place for queer programming to flourish. And were there any other reasons beyond simply being in these important cities well uh, also not a, not just that these those i also have to mention houston texas and washington dc you know those stations came into being in 1975 1978 and in their first year both of those radio stations um, broadcast queer series kpft there was a series called wild and stein um and in WPFW, they actually, in their first month of broadcasting, did an all-day gay pride broadcast um, with yeah. both local community events and a gay pride parade. So the commitment of the stations is important to queer history. And also, it just wasn't just this conversational singular program um, that, you know, it wasn't a token gay program that each radio station um, presented. They also presented arts um, material, arts programming um, related to gay communities. Um, you know, a documentary on Oscar Wilde in 1964 in, in Los Angeles was probably the first 
program broadcast to listeners that gave a full life cycle of a homosexual from birth to death and what happened in his love relationships and his artistic relationships and how it ended. And that particular program, it was a, it's a docudrama, um, you know, performed as a radio drama, but built off of documentary information. And I think the one of the most fascinating things about that program was that it was produced because De Profundus, De Profundus, which Oscar Wilde wrote in Reading Jail, had been redacted and edited and had not been released in its entirety until the year 1964. So that year was the first time anybody, scholars, um, you know, literary people, you know, theater goers, you know, even, and scholars of Oscar Wilde, it was the first time they'd read what he wrote about Bosey and wrote he wrote about his time in jail um, unedited. And that's what exists in this radio program in 1964. So that's, a, obviously, I'm very passionate about that particular program. And Brian DeShazer, we're on the line with you because, well, you are... Um... You're an independent radio researcher, and you're working on this project to sort of put together this archive of gay community radio, of queer radio, especially from the Pacifica Radio archives. It's very exciting because I, there's a lot that community radio is good at, and there's a lot of things that community radio does well. And I think it's really unique that um, in a time in the United States where gay voices uh, didn't exist— uh, on the radio, on television, not maybe not even in print in, in a lot of places, uh, that there was a, a space was made for them on the radio. And, and or not even the space was made. They they took space on the radio. They their voices were on the radio at these stations, which was really a unique uh moment in the history of the media uh in the United States. I'm just really excited about these tapes. Um yes and I'm actually excited that, you know, academia and um you know, professors and educators um, in media studies and in um, queer studies are recognizing this um, form of history as important as the written word or the video work um, that's more contemporary and more accessible. Um, even scholars in queer studies aren't aware of this landscape of history that is you know mostly lost you know if we really think about the large landscape of queer programming over those course of decades the majority of it is gone and has either been thrown away um, taped over or lost for some reason and the main reason so what we do save and can rescue certainly should be prioritized which is what i'm trying to do with bringing awareness to these collections um, mm -hmm. is, is trying to address the, the fact that, one, the tapes are deteriorating faster than money can afford to get them digitized and cataloged and described properly so they're um, able to be found by scholars and researchers in the future. Um, but also that, um, you know, to have them transcribed is a dream of mine. Um, you know, the hearing impaired have never heard or had access, I mean, say the hearing impaired have never had access to some of these 
valuable recordings that I've mentioned, The Homosexual in Our Society, Live and Let Live, an Oscar Wilde documentary, you know, Wilde and Stein, you know, IMRU, the um, interviews with the Gay Community Services Center. You know, none of that is in print form yet. So, you know, one of my dreams mm -hmm. is to, you know, get some of it published to where um, the information is then seen as valuable and then it can sort of, again, um, reinforce the need for more funding to go to these small institutions that have recordings. How can, and as you're mentioning in this, how can people find some of this material now? They can call me. <laughs> um, you, know, I, you know, I really am still at the, the beginning stages of building a website where I can um, post some of this information, like a spreadsheet of, you know, um, records that I found um, and the information in the folios, um, even photographs and essays. You know, one of the big questions for me was what happened in June of 1969 at WBAI, the New York City, the night of Stonewall. Did anything happen? Did anything survive? What was the station's intentions? What was the gay programmer's intentions? Um, and so the written record, you know, those folios were printed months in advance. So there was no chance that I would find what would happen on that night. But I did find, I think five years later in a folio, there was interviews with people that were there on the scene and so I sort of know what kind of, you know, what happened that night at midnight. Um, somebody preempted the program and did special reports, but none of that survives. Hmm. hmm. And what if people, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this cache of tapes that was in storage in Palm Springs, and, and perhaps there are other secret hidden archives that individuals have kept throughout the country. So... If people listening have access to to tapes of queer programming, what should they do with that material? Um, they should call me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the guy. So, you know, so what? Um, you know, to, to find me on Facebook, just find me at Brian DeShazer and communicate with me, and I can um, help you from there or answer questions until the website is built. Um, but in terms of if people have collections that they want to preserve in some way. You know, yes, definitely contact me or contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. The Richard Gollantz tapes, because he's also a, a film screenwriter, um, you know, the University of California, Santa Barbara, was interested in his paper records as well as his um, radio history recordings. So he decided to donate those tapes there, which is available. Um, those records are available in the online, of, online archive of California, um, and it's called the Richard Gallant's Collection. I um, mean, you could access them by going to UC Santa Barbara. Um, there's a collection at the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives at USC, um, which I'm actually getting ready to study in the next course of action if I receive a fellowship grant that I applied for. They have two 2,000 tapes of IMRU from the 1970s from KPFK, but they have no equipment to digitize them or audition them. Um, and the descriptive, descriptive records aren't detailed enough to really um, inform scholars. So it's my intention to do a, you know, a formal tape assessment of the mm. physical tapes of their condition, as well as you know, a, um, 
uh, an audition of the descriptive records to give them an incentive to prioritize that collection for digitization under USC wow. what, uh, grant writing. As near as you can tell, how what is on those tapes? What is what is this program IMRU from KPFK in Los Angeles? Right. Well, this is the gay radio series that started in 1974 as a collective um, um, series. You know, it wasn't a singular producer that decided everything, but collectives submitted programming from individuals who produced, went out into the field or did personal interviews. Um, So those recordings of IMRU never made it to the Pacifica Radio Archives for some reason. Um, Sometimes it's because of the trust issue. You know, Pacifica Radio Archives in the 1970s had not yet been established to then promise those individual producers that they would get copies back or they would have access Mm. to them. And also there's that part of being afraid that a queer program was going to be erased on purpose because of it being um, um, questionable by the FCC. You know, a programmer might be scared that the program would be um, uh, retrieved by the FCC for some legal purpose. Has that, Brian, can you, was there a reason to be worried that that was a possibility? Did did the FCC ever enforce... um, you know, I'm assuming obscenity rules upon Pacifica stations based on gay content? Um, Yes, actually there were. There were two license challenges to two radio stations, one KPFK and one WBAI, I think. And I'm going to have to go back to my own article. But um, Edward Albee's (laughs) play The Zoo Story, which was a gay play was broadcast and that started a um, FCC challenge against the KPFK license, but none of them won. Um, so the mm-hmm. zoo, zoo story was a big factor. And then another challenge was just generally speaking that it was offensive material, obscene material being broadcast, which was basically a conversation between a 16 year old boy calling into a known homosexual asking questions about what does he do with the fact that he loves his girlfriend and his boyfriend. <laughs> um, oh. and, and that really was the challenge. And that really was the fear of that programmer who had that tape of if I give it to the station, then it'll, then I'm definitely going to be, um, you know, in danger, in danger. But if I hide it under, yeah. if I hide it under my bed, nobody will know. And, wow. and that's really how a lot of these tapes ended up in a storage unit in Palm Springs. Now, what? And also, the stations at the time didn't want the tapes. So you're you're describing these tapes themselves would, in fact, potentially be evidence of a crime because uh, things in the United States were such that a gay person talking, frankly, about their sexuality on the radio um, uh, could be considered evidence that that um, that could get a lot of people in trouble. Is that is that true? Is that why the, the tapes were, were also uh, difficult to archive? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that question is a, is a valid yes. Um, another little collection that I just received um, recently that I didn't know existed um, was WBAI New York City 1969-1970 called the Homosexual News um, 
And those tapes lived in a closet of the producer until his death just recently, and his estate executor contacted me. And so I'm now going through those to identify um, you know, any references to Stonewall, since um, historians are looking for any evidence of Stonewall. Um, but back to the question about legality and you know why did individuals save programs and not donate them to Pacifica radio archives or Pacifica radio stations were interested in them. You know, the one program that I highlighted of um, Charles Pitts taking a phone call from a 16-year-old man um, about his sexuality, that in and of itself, that whole conversation could be considered a crime because he's talking to a minor um, and, and giving advice about um, what is legal and what isn't legal, and basically everything at the time was illegal. <laughs> yeah, and and to be clear, the the sixteen year old uh, at this point in time in the nineteen in was late nineteen sixties called this show. He called in to ask questions, um, which reminds me of uh, um, jumping ahead to the nineteen nineties. There was a show in Los Angeles that made a big impression on me, where where young people. Uh, it was called Love Line, and it's you know famous for many reasons. And it was a call-in show where people could call in with frank, uh, you know, serious questions about their sexuality, despite the fact that they were minors, and they would get good information. And that kind of thing uh, wasn't wasn't a crime in 1990, whatever. But it, it very well could have been uh, because of um, what the authorities were capable of in in the early 70s and late 60s. Right, and and in all the stations, even now, are still um, in danger of having a member of the public complain to the FCC about what they consider is obscene. Um, it still happens. Um, so you know, even you know the complaints about you know George Carlin's seven dirty words you can't say on the television. Um, those were flashpoints in terms of what is considered obscene. But even Allen Ginsberg's howl was brought up before the FCC as an obscene program and challenged um, Pacifica's broadcast of it. So it really started at the very beginning in 1956 of queer programming being considered questionable by some organization, institution, or group of people. Let's take a listen now to uh, the call-in show that we've been talking about. Uh, It's from WBAI. The program was called The Outside. It was hosted by Charles Pitts, and the recording was made in June of 1968, and it comes to us courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts. Well, I, I don't... All right, don't listen. Don't get you. You know. It's all right. No, I don't Hang up that. and right. just don't listen and uh, see if I care. <laughs> Good night, Charlie. Good night. All right. Hello, B.A.I. You're on the air. We're on the air? Yeah. Uh, I am a very much younger than you, and I would like some advice from... How old are you? Well, I'm 16, and I would like some advice from an older homosexual. How can you be 16 with a voice like that? You sound older than I am. Uh, well, I'm an amateur radio operator, and I've had quite a bit of voice training. Ah. But, uh, well, it's a deep voice, but I did call for some advice. Okay, go ahead. Ask Uh, me, and I've got my hand on the button. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, keep it there. <coughs> uh, well, try to be delicate if it covers any you yeah, know, sensitive areas. All right. Mainly, what I'd like to know is, well, I have a girlfriend, and I'm going steady with her, but I also have very peculiar desires. 
What what sort of peculiar desires? You mean for guys? Yeah, well, yeah. And well, uh, what's peculiar about that? Uh, what's peculiar about it? Many people seem to consider it peculiar. Oh right, okay. All right, and you you go along with them, right? You oh, agree I, with them? Up to now, I've been going along with my desires. Oh, you've been going along with your desires? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Very nice. And now, mainly what I want Another to know hedonist. is... Another hedonist. Now I'm 16. At what point will I achieve certain legal difficulties by continuing to follow my uh, desires, even if it would include making friendships with children oh, who are yeah. younger than me? Yeah, right. Okay, now if you're, if you're 16 and you are... Um, having um, um, very personal relationships with other 16-year-old kids, generally you're not bothered because this is accepted. And even among the more sophisticated people in uh, society now, you could probably even be having sex with these other people. And they would still be accepted on, the, on uh, keeping in mind that it's just a phase you're going through, you see that everybody is, uh, has this, it's a Freudian thing, a horrible, terrible Freudian thing. <laughs> well, I've Misinterpretation of it. You know, it's not a phase, it's me. Yeah, well, it, it, in a sense, it's a phase, but it's not, in, it, it, it's irrelevant. Anyway, um, so you're not going to, you probably won't be hassled unless your parents are uptight about it, if they are, or no, if I neighbors. Very liberal parents. Oh, okay, well, then they're going to think it's a phase. And if they, uh, if they don't think it's a phase, you've got beautiful parents. And, I mean, that is if you continue to do it. And if uh, probably you don't have beautiful parents, because I think I think four people in the last survey that was conducted, four people in the United States have beautiful parents. Well, I'm living mainly with mostly my mother, and uh, uh -huh. you know she tells me right from wrong, and I regulate from there. Oh, but um, what, what well, she hasn't turned you against women, has she? Oh, no, no, I have oh. a girlfriend. Also, oh. I, I'd like to know if you think I should tell my girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Right, well, it depends on your girlfriend. You know, you have to kind of psych out the situation and see how hip various people are. If you're very open about it, you're going to get screwed the rest of your life. Yeah, that, that's, that's another thing. Um, I'm not too open. Yeah, right, and uh, it and, just, just uh, depends on... I don't feel on... like a career. Yeah. Uh, there are some careers you can have, but if you don't want to be a hairdresser or a window dresser no, or a dresser drawer I'm or whatever. For medicine. medicine. Well, you might be able to get away with it there. I know a lot of gay doctors. <laughs> I don't. Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, you have to play a lot by ear. But uh, now, what was the should? What was the main question you wanted to ask? Uh, I love giving advice. What? At what age will law step into my life? Well, uh, legally, you're breaking the law now. Even in um, New York State? Even in New York State, right. But practically speaking, you don't start getting in trouble until you're... Um, well, you get increasingly in trouble about it as you get older, up to, like, 21. If you're still... When you're 21, you're an adult, and if you're playing yeah. around with another adult, it's supposed to be legal, isn't it? No, no, not in New York State. Oh. Illinois, maybe Britain, yes, but uh, not in New York State. And it's against the law, and you get all kinds of hassles. Um, especially if you're otherwise law-abiding, you know. Yeah, I'm uh, very much law-abiding. I yeah. love cops and everything. Right. But, uh, <laughs> um, 
What was the other thing? Oh, uh, yeah. Le legally, you can never do it. I mean, no matter what age you are. But practically speaking, it doesn't become a problem until you get older. Yeah, what do you do when you get older? Because that's... Well, you, you just... Older. Yeah. Well, you do. <laughs> I you plan to get made older. that decision about your life. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't you think you're a little presumptuous? No. Uh, yeah, just get older. Uh, it will be a hassle, uh, but if... Um, I can't... <laughs> You know, I can't say that there's any special golden rule. Where do uh, kids my age go to meet? Uh, how old are you? Sixteen? Yeah. Well, are you going to school? Yeah, Bayside High. Okay. Go to school. <laughs> <laughs> no particular uh, location? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the haunts. I mean, I stay away from the haunts, usually. Uh, you know, most of the time. Like, I, I don't know Bayside. I don't know what's in Bayside. I yeah, well, I, mean, I know there's plenty of gar garbage around for uh, adults, but I'm talking about kids my age who... Yeah, but, I mean, if you were a 16-year-old straight kid and you said, where do I go to meet girls, I wouldn't know what to tell you. Yeah, I see what you mean. I, I mean, they're I'm deficient. I can't, can't help you. And there's another thing. Like, I, I have one girlfriend, and I would never date any other but her especially when I, at the same time, that I'm seeing her. And uh, that doesn't seem to hold true with uh, boys. You know, it's like not... Like you don't get hooked on one guy. Well, I get hooked on a lot. <laughs> you see? Oh, all, like six different people that you're madly in love with all yeah. at once. Oh. Yeah, that's... Uh, why? Yeah, Is that what why? you said, why? Yeah, why with uh, <clears throat> boys who I find uh, could be more than one? Because the... Uh, well, I don't know. A possible reason is, I won't say that this is the reason, because I don't know you. And um, it would take three or four more deep therapy sessions in order to be able to determine exactly. No, uh, a possible reason is that in this society, um, uh, constancy and fidelity uh, is encouraged between, uh, you know, a boy and a girl. And it's never brought up about two boys because, they, you know, you just don't talk about two boys. So you don't consider what kind of relationship they have, whether they... A lot has to do with society, I guess. Yeah, so I, actually I think that that your relationship with the other boys is more normal, uh, I mean, more natural, uh, and your relationship with the girl is more um, uh, based on society's notions of how boys and girls well, should behave. It's more, uh put on. It's not as natural, but uh, it's just as much fun. Yeah, right. I guess. <laughs> you guess? Yeah, I guess. I'm still young. I'm only 16. You know? Right. But, uh, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Hmm. Well, good luck in uh, your endeavors. Whatever <laughs> happens. Thank you very much. I hope you find somebody. <laughs> well, I guess I, I guess I shouldn't say that to you when you're 16 years old. You know, when you're 35 and you're out cruising on Christopher Street, then I, when I say, I hope you find somebody, it'll mean something to you. No, I, I usually don't cruise. Yeah, well, you don't need to, because you're young. And, yeah. You know, you don't have to get into special-type situations for special feelings, you know. You're freer now, actually. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's... Uh, yeah, because uh, instead of uh, people looking three times at me, they'll only look once. Right. And 
there are many more rationalizations for for guys being together than there are for uh, like an older guy and a younger guy or two older guys. I mean, people people will tend to make up excuses for you. Yeah, you know. but most of my friends are uh, either my age or a few years younger. Yeah, right. And and the, I mean, the parents or people who could cause trouble uh, would tend to rationalize it and say, "Oh, they're just a bunch, you know, just a gang of kids having a lot of fun." <laughs> right? And they are usually. I remember. I used to have a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Lots of fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I bet you would have some great stories to tell me, but not on the air. No, no, I don't get into that on the air. <laughs> no, that's not allowed. Well, it's not that it's not allowed. It's just that it's not I, I'm trying to preserve some sort of personal life. It's kind of hard because it, uh, the, my personal life is the only thing that distinguishes me you know, from yeah, do you usually George do this for a living? Uh, is it disc jockey? What? Oh, a disc jockey. No, I'm a staff announcer here normally, and I'm just substituting for Steve Post tonight. But uh, even though I have a deep voice, uh, I'm still young, and uh, I look I look a little bit older than I am. Also, that that's another thing that I don't like. I'd rather look about twelve. Really? Yeah, I look about eighteen. Yeah. I have a thick beard, and. Uh, you know, I don't have trouble getting into places or anything. Yeah. And uh, plus the voice is very deep. Yeah. Why do you want to be 12 again? Let us examine these feelings that you have. <laughs> of wanting to <laughs> regress Sigmund, to the age of 12. It's very strange. Something weird must have happened to you when you were 12 years old. Well, Sigmund, it, it happened like this. I don't, I don't exactly remember what happened. But uh, I would rather look younger than older. Really? Well, that can be an advantage when you're homosexual, is looking younger, because yeah, and there's certain... Well, yeah, I guess you can make a generalization about the homosexual subculture uh, places a premium on youthful looks, almost at the expense of any other value, sometimes. Well, of course, because that's the first, uh, the first uh, type of selection. The first, like, the first form of selection. Yeah. The youthful garbage and everything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Thanks for calling Hardline and um, <laughs> telling us your heartbreaking story. Heartbreaking? <laughs> no, I'm putting on. Putting <laughs> oh, on. And again, you just heard a clip from a listener call-in to WBAI in 1968. With uh, the program was called The Outside. It was hosted by Charles Pitts. It comes to Radio Survivor from Brian DeShazer, courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts. In the 60s and 70s, young people calling up to ask honest questions about their sexuality, if it, if they weren't uh, fully confident in their own heterosexuality, uh, could be considered a crime on the radio, uh, which is... Um, which might be difficult for people to understand in the year 2019, that the level of censorship and the 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 status of the gay community as being um, uh, not legally protected uh, when it comes to just talking on the radio about their existence um, might be a surprise to people. And it, it's, uh, it's still a surprise to me, even though I'm aware of the history. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a, it was a surprise to me when I heard that conversation about how blatant and unapologetic it was on both of their parts. Um, you know, the 16-year-old boy was 
um, clearly, clearly um, you know, ahead of his time in terms of being a high school student with um, having the deep questions about his identity, not just about um, you know, the, sex, the sex act. You just sort of alluded to this and some things that have surprised you. And I'm really curious to hear what you've learned about queer history from digging into the archives. Well, I, I think it's been really surprising that I've found brothers and sisters that I didn't know I had. You know, all those people from those early days were saying the same things that people need to hear today. Um, certainly in my own personal evolution, um, you know, I came out in a small town in Virginia in high school when there was no gay and lesbian center in the town, there was no gay radio show, um, there were no other individuals that I knew, um, there was one gay bar, but it was all across the water, I couldn't get to it, and I couldn't drive anyway. Um, so understanding that we haven't, it, it's not a, a end game in terms of the information of coming out, and this journey happens every day to different individuals that have to go through this journey. So even a program from 1974 rebroadcast today can still serve the same need it did back in 74 by giving an individual um, the validation of being who they are. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, that was, I mean, that leads to kind of another question of how you think, how would you like people to use these types of archives? And I guess I guess you're explaining that that these shows still hold so much weight even in 2019 when when things have vastly improved for the gay community we can still be inspired by and learn from from these recordings from the past. Absolutely and I think that's why they're still on the air. You know, I'm RU is still on the air at KPFK. Um there is a gay radio show on KPFT. There's Out FM on WBAI, and Sophie's Parlor on WPFW is a, a women's program that, in, um, you know, broadcasts lesbian um, information. Um, and there's another LGBT program. So I think that's part and parcel of why the need is still there. And, and as, as far as we've come since Stonewall, we are seeing a lot of backlash both nationally and internationally, um, you know, as the transgender movement, you know, gains some notoriety, um, it also creates some backlash. So, Brian DeShazer, you're putting together this this archive, this one of a kind archive uh, of of queer and gay uh, community radio content. I'm wondering um, how much there is about uh, transgender issues, which even at this moment, I don't imagine that there's a community radio transgender specific uh, program, let alone something from the the 70s or the 80s. Have you found anything? Right. You know, that that's a really great point. You know, as I was doing this program, you know, and, and calling it the LGBTQ History Project, you know, and I do use the Queer Radio Research Project to um, just encompass everything and make it simpler. But, you know, but there was the question of like, there really hasn't been a program series by and for transgender produced by a transgender collective or individual um, speaking to a transgender audience. Um, the LGBT programs that are on the air now have 
sort of in been in, inclusive as much as they can be. Um, well, I won't even say as much right. as they can be. They've been inclusive as they've told me they've been inclusive. Um, but it's still, in in my opinion, um, there should be a transgender produced program on public radio that addresses the specific and individual needs of the transgender communities. Because there's transgender men, there's transgender women, there's cis men, there's cis women, um, and everything and everything in between of the non non-binary and fluidity, gender fluidity. So there's a lot more that needs to be questioned and answered. Um, and I think it, the, the time is right for this to happen. And I think that's one of the outcomes of my research is showing that the transgender community hasn't, and even the bisexual community for that matter, um, hasn't had the a space given to them as much as gay men, and I'll even say gay white men, um, or lesbians. Um, but I would say predominantly gay white men had the seat um, first and foremost, um, and sort of um, allowed lesbians to get their shoulders in until through the feminist movement, lesbians demanded their own space. Um, you know, there is evidence of transgender issues being brought up in some of those early programs, uh, transgender um, violence by the police um, is a program title from KPFA from the 1960s. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is there, but as you said, you know, some communities that are, are increasing both in size and um, ability to function in our society does need to have space to talk about um, their experiences in the workplace and sexual harassment and all that goes with um, being a human being, frankly. And that's been a great aspect of community radio to provide space for all kinds of voices. So I can only imagine that there are that are folks thinking about coming up with this type of programming, or perhaps it already exists, perhaps at at smaller, more localized stations or college radio stations. Yeah, that's a good time to to let our listeners know that if you are aware of a, a, a current radio program or even um, alternate media program, because radio is not the only game in town in 2019, please do reach out to us. Podcast at Radio Survivor is our email address. We'd love to hear about uh, these shows, what's going on right now, um, as opposed to this conversation that we're having about about the history of community radio, um, where where a lot of the bulk of the excitement and the bulk of our conversation today has been about the 1960s and the 1970s, and as well as the 80s. We haven't we haven't talked very much about the 80s, Brian DeShazer. No, and uh, you know when we talk about the 80s, you know the AIDS epidemic is the the biggest news story of that decade, yeah. um, which started in 1986, um, but. I'll have to say Pacifica Radio was at the forefront of broadcasting information, um, practical information, as well as um, um, psychological information about what the AIDS epidemic was, AIDS epidemic was doing. Um, so even before AIDS had a name, Pacifica was broadcasting information about um, the gay cancer um, and and continued valiantly to broadcast conferences and interviews with doctors who were, um, you know, in the research field. Um, and not only, so yeah, the AIDS epidemic was the big story of the eighties and these programs that had been 
already well established for more than 10 years. IMRU, Out FM, um, the Fruit Punch Collective, I think it had already been, been disbanded, but at the time there was a gay program at KPFA. Um, so yeah, luckily there was already a space and experienced producers to handle the big story of the AIDS epidemic when commercial radio and commercial television was still shy of it. Yeah, and I can imagine, again, the, what, what we've been talking about today on our program on Radio Survivor is just the power of community radio to hear uh, voices on the day they're being recorded, humans, people talking about their feelings, and also the news that is relevant to them uh, in the moment, the day that it's being recorded. And as the AIDS crisis unfolded, there was so much... Um, there was so much lack of information. There was so much lack of, there was so much silence, um, both officially, but just also uh, just those years were such a, um, there, there was so much to talk about. And so I can imagine that on the community radio, uh, these shows, they, they really are probably one of the primary documents available just to hear, just to hear people talking about these issues in real time when things were so intense. Uh, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, the conversational being important, you know, so commercial media, you know, had headlines about the AIDS epidemic and how many people had died and how many people were infected and what was the possibility of infection. Um, whereas Pacifica Radio really had those conversations with real people who were dealing with um, the everyday um, aspects of the disease, both as doctors, physicians, researchers, um, people who were losing their friends and family left and right, um, and also the institutions and organizations that were built as a response to the AIDS epidemic. You know, so we're talking about 1986 to, well, to present, but 1986 to 96 really is the heavy decade of um, the bulk of the loss of lives. Uh, but, you know, 1979 was the Harvey Milk story and the assassination of Harvey Milk and the um, the period between 1979 and 1986 was a celebratory time when gay pride parades were being broadcast all day long on Pacifica Radio. Um, and they had gay day broadcasts where they had the parade and concerts and um, gay choirs and gay marching bands and gay poets and gay musicians and you know, lesbian scholars, um, and it was a really exciting time. But as soon as the AIDS epidemic came to be, that sort of um, happy time was over. Um, so that the, those stories that are now just a memory can be accessed in real time. And, and what I experience when I listen to those recordings is the emotion of real time. You know, my, my tears when I cry listening to a 16-year-old boy ask about love when he had nowhere to go to ask that question are the tears that I cry today, not back then. Oh, wasn't that profound? <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it's such an amazing cultural history that, that you're able to share with us. Well, it was certainly is a, a, a privilege and an honor to, um, you know, be one of the few people that has ties to this history and has the ability to, um, you know, continue the research to provide, you know, scholars and radio historians like yourselves 
um, and new media makers like yourselves, um, you know, the chance to access this history and hopefully it lives again. Brian DeShazer on that note, independent radio researcher and organizer of the Queer Radio Research Project. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I really appreciate your interest in the subject. Well, thank you for listening to Radio Survivor today. A longer version of this program, if you heard it on the radio, is available on the web at radiosurvivor.com. You can also subscribe to this program as a podcast where you can hear the long version anywhere where you get your podcasts. Again, if you would like to email us, our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. On behalf of Jennifer Wades, who produced today's program, on behalf of Paul Reese Mandel, who will be back soon, and Matthew Lazar, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.